Hello and welcome to this first edition of Lanson's Political Capital podcast, coming to you this morning not from a studio in Farringdon, but from homes in and around London, courtesy of the coronavirus lockdown. I'm James Dowling and I head Lanson's public affairs practice. I'm also a former Treasury official and a former special advisor, to which point I'm delighted to be joined today by my friend and former boss, the former Justice Secretary, former Work and Pensions Secretary, and former Chief Secretary to the Treasury, David Gork. We'll be discussing the government's response to the coronavirus crisis, the possible routes out of it, and what happens next. David, good morning. How are you? Good morning, James. Uh, very well, thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. David, we've heard from the government that over one billion items of PPE have already been delivered to the NHS. Human trials of a vaccine were due to begin on the 23rd of April. And cases of COVID in London peaked around the 10th of April and then started to decrease, although the rest of the UK is now lagging a bit behind that. It's possible to paint a genuinely good picture of the government's performance, particularly when you add in the impressive performance of HMRC on setting up the furlough scheme and of the Department of Work and Pensions in dealing with demands on universal credit. And yet headlines remain fixated on ongoing issues with PPE and testing. And there are increasing calls, for example, recently in The Times, for the Prime Minister to overhaul his cabinet. What's going wrong? Well, I think it is genuinely a mixed bag uh, within the government. I, mean, I think the first point that has to be acknowledged is that this is the most enormous challenge for any government in terms of coping with the virus. And so one has to have sympathy with them, you know, just on sheer scale of things that need to be done. The very rapid disruption to our country is huge. And I think governments will struggle with that. I think there have been some genuine successes. You highlight uh, HMRC and the furloughing uh, process. I mean, that has moved remarkably quickly. I think DWP's ability to uh, deal with a surge in universal credit claims has been very impressive. And fundamentally, the NHS hasn't fallen over, and there was a lot of concern that that was going to going to happen. Um, but. One also you know, can point to very significant difficulties, largely in the procurement area for testing, for ventilators, for PPE, and a, a sense that perhaps the government was a bit slow off the, the, the blocks. I, I think it's hard to give a fair assessment at this point. I think genuinely a mixed bag. Don't think things have gone uh, as smoothly as they would want in a number of cases, but I don't think it's been, in all honesty, um, disastrous. And I suspect history will will have to have to judge this. I think it's hard to give a fair assessment at the moment. I think the bigger problems, and I know we'll turn to this, are still to come. And you know, the issues of how do you uh, move on from the lockdown? Uh, how do you deal with an economy that has been devastated by um, the coronavirus? Those are really, really big challenges, and that will test any government. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think that's that, that sounds right. I mean, the um, it feels slightly like the areas that the that the media is focusing on. So you you mentioned we both you mentioned PPE and testing are areas that are I mean they're, they're reasonable to focus focus on because the NHS is obviously at the centre of this crisis and these are key things to these are key tools in the battle against it but also they're areas that the government has made benchmarks of delivery I think that's right I think one of the one of the problems here and I, I think I think there is a fair criticism to be made there have been occasions where they have overpromised um, and that makes it difficult when you can't deliver on that. PPE is clearly important in the you know, the fundamental question about 
can the NHS cope? Can we make sure that people get the treatment that they need? I think you know, we go back a few weeks and when you started to hear the reports of what was happening in northern Italy and you know, essentially people over the age of 70, I think sometimes even the age, over the age of 60, were not getting treatment because the system was falling down. Now, we've avoided that. None of that here. is happening. None of that has happened here. But the PPE point, you know, if we run out of PPE, are we putting our healthcare workers under completely unacceptable levels of, of risk? Um, that is a problem. And testing, look, I think in, in, in my view, the issue of about testing isn't so much about where we are today, or even, dare I say it, where we are on the 30th of April. But when it comes to any strategy to move on from the lockdown, it seems to me that testing has got to play a very large part of that. We're going to have to scale it up very, very significantly if we're going to be able to find a route out of the current lockdown. I mean, one of the things I, that's, that's troubled me a bit about, about this and the government's uh, uh, communication on this point is is that uh, is, is the seemingly open ended nature of the lockdown, where if you're if you're running a business, uh, you're you're essentially being asked to kind of uh, shut 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 your doors, uh, you know, lose revenue on on seemingly an open ended basis, and that, it's quite difficult, I would have thought, to hold public confidence in that situation. The government hasn't so far communicated either kind of a timescale within which or the circumstances within which clearly we're going to come out of this situation. Yes, that's right. And the desire for business to have a timetable is entirely understandable. But I think it's very, very hard for government to offer that, um, in part because there's a lot of matters which are beyond their control. But they have also got a big the government has got a big question it has to answer, which is broadly the strategy that it pursues. In stark terms, the choices lie between a suppression model and then try to quickly deal with any flare-ups of the virus um, as, as, as quickly as possible, but essentially try to operate without the virus existing in this country and then get back to normal that way. Or alternatively, except that you're always going to have to run the NHS fairly hot that there are going to be infections, that you shield the most vulnerable, and you try to work through that way. But in a society that is you know, not used to um, you know, large numbers of deaths, in a way, you know, we're, we're, it's a long time since we've had a major war, um, we're not used to major infectious diseases having a big impact. You know, society is, is understandably very squeamish about that, and political accountability for politicians who pursue a strategy that you know, results in identifiable deaths is incredibly difficult. And and that's why the government, I think, is, has been reluctant to find a way through this. And you know, they are going to have to find a route that reassures the public as much as possible. But clearly, the lockdown that we have at the moment is having a devastating impact on our economy and our long-term ability to fund a society and a health service that will increase life expectancy and uh, improve health. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it seems entirely conceivable you could get to a situation where the judgment of history is actually that the government's response has been was, was as good as it could have been, uh, allowing for wider circumstances. Uh, and yet um, the, the impact on their reputation 
is is pretty significant, and uh, particularly when you've got Keir Starmer sitting across sitting across the aisle now, who looks a much better bet than, frankly, Corbyn does. Well, that is true, and uh, look, I mean, the government politically been doing pretty well. Support for the Conservative Party in the polls is remarkably high, but the really difficult bits are still to come. The difficult points are the what could be broadly described as the exit strategy, but how do we move on? from here you know do they move too quickly too slowly uh, is it competent in the way in which it is executed that that's going to be incredibly difficult and then of course you are left with an economy that is probably significantly smaller public finances in a much weaker position and a government that has a responsibility to do something about that so the political challenge for the government is very considerable and as you say um, a much more formidable opponent I think Keir Starmer's set a, a, a very clever tone if you like he's been constructive uh, he has identified failures and, and weaknesses uh, as he sees it but he's managed to do it in a way that doesn't suggest that he's desperate to uh, you know, create some political wins. He's coming across as somebody who wants the government to succeed. And I think that is the public mood at the moment. So he is a credible opponent. And that's the first time the Conservative Party has faced that for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and therefore a much low, less low risk strategy if you're if you're thinking about where to vote next time, which uh, will be will be on everyone's minds. Um, what uh, let's say we come out of this i mean however we or we move on from this phase to next to the next phase is probably the better way of putting it uh you, you've mentioned the public finances i mean you you were you were in the treasury when osborne um did his first budget uh and the first spending review um the public finances out of this are looking like they're going to be in a worse situation than they were at that point and yet, the, the, the strategic dynamic, the strategic imperative for the government is still going to be to uh, kind of chase after the votes of the people who who voted for them last time, and that feels now a very difficult circle to square. Seeming as, as the route the route through that was to essentially to spend a lot of money in those in in those areas. Yes, I think if you're drawing a contrast or a comparison with 2010. Uh, one level, there there is perhaps less of a risk of a sovereign debt crisis that the markets perhaps are more forgiving than they were in 2010. That quite a lot of the increase in uh, borrowing is is very much cyclical. It's it's likely to be short term, whereas we had a very substantial structural budget deficit in 2010. But we will have be at a level of debt, our debt to GDP ratio will be starting off much, much higher than we were in 2010. So that does make it difficult. I think also that in 2010, it was perfectly possible for spending to take most of the strain. Uh, of course, you know, there are areas where we can look at some of the spending cuts and you know, in truth, we probably did go too far in some areas. But you know, frankly, there isn't a lot of fat in terms of public expenditure now. I don't think the public would be supportive of uh, a form of austerity in terms of public spending that repeats what we did 10 years ago. It's pretty clear to me that taxes are going to have to take a greater share of the strain. 
Um, at the same time, there will be a very strong pressure, and this is where there is, I think, a good comparison with the years after 2010. There will be a strong desire to get the economy growing again. And I think it is going to be important from, if you like, the perspective of businesses to set out a sort of sensible strategy of how we can get economic growth uh, in the UK and how we can raise taxes in a way that doesn't damage that economic growth. And I think that's going to be one of the big issues, maybe not for the next six months or so, but I think you know a year or two down the line, the question is going to be very much about you know how do we get how do we get growth and how do we use the tax system to inspire that growth? Of course, we want to get the economy up and running very quickly. But when it comes to sort of long-term public finances, um, I think it would be sensible that those public finances are uh, are linked to a, a sensible growth strategy. Yeah, so it may actually it may actually force more of a holistic approach on that than we saw in 2010. Well, I, I hope so. These things are never easy, and you're right to say that, that, that you know the political pressures are still going to be there. But we're in a very very different different situation from the one that we were even at the time of the March budget um, where you know there was a sort of more relaxed attitude to borrowing I think the case that you know in in good years you can't be borrowing substantial sums of money because you do have to prepare for the bad years and you know and boy are we experiencing a bad year yeah yeah um, let, let's let's move on to uh... Brexit. Uh, I mean, in the in the midst of everything that's been going on, Number Ten has still been briefing out, and indeed David Frost has tweeted out that we will be uh, we will be leaving come what may on on uh, at the end of the year. Sorry, we'll be leaving the transition period come what may at the end of the year. Uh, we won't be extending it, and indeed, if the EU asks to extend it, we'll say no. <laughs> yes, it's quite an in- interesting signal to send amid all the kind of economic chaos we're already seeing. Well, I hope that this is a certain amount of bluster uh, and this is about uh, the positioning of the UK when it comes to uh, funding Eurozone bailouts and all that sort of stuff. I can only hope that that is what it is about. I I think um, as someone who's argued you know, not that long ago that I thought the government probably wanted almost to kind of crash out without a trade deal by the end of the year, that it made political sense. I think it's a dangerous approach if they go down that route this time in these circumstances. I mean, for a start, if a government is supposed to be uh, totally focused on dealing with COVID-19 and the consequences of that, it doesn't have the bandwidth to negotiate a trade deal with our most important trading partner. So that, at a practical level, uh, matters. Secondly, you know, businesses need time to prepare for a new trading relationship. We know that this new trading relationship is going to involve more friction with our trade with the European Union. Well, that requires preparations. Businesses can't be focusing on that and facing all the issues that they do with coronavirus. Uh, so I, th- I think um, as well, it would be an incredibly divisive move, uh, given that there is 
public goodwill towards the government. I think most people are willing the government to succeed, including those who voted for other parties and including Remainers and uh, so on. So I think um, if they were to go down that route, I think it would be seen as divisive. I think it would be seen as ideological. Uh, I think it would be seen to be tone deaf to the interests of businesses and although I dare say there are voices in number 10 who are making the case for just pressing on regardless, um, what I hope is the case is that that is just a sort of holding line, partly about negotiations with the European Union, but partly just because they've got to say something between now and, say, the end of May, when they're going to have to make a decision as to whether they seek to extend and um, yeah, they might. There might be a lot of noise now, but ultimately the decision will have to be made in end of May, early June, and at that point, I hope sanity prevails. It doesn't feel like a great way of managing the Brexiteers on your on your own bench, is there? No, I agree. I think, and, and look, there's a real issue here because yeah, they rather foolishly put this into law that uh, you can't extend. And uh, consequently, they're going to need primary legislation and a vote in Parliament. Now, they'll win that vote because obviously all the opposition parties will support and the front bench and the payroll vote will. But, you know, there could be a significant rebellion. And uh, I'm sure they're mindful of that. But uh, I, I really think it would be an appalling um, application of responsibility to allow fear of uh, of a conservative rebellion to prevent them taking what it seems is a perfectly obvious decision, supported, you know, I know by quite a few Brexiteers who said, "Well, if we have to extend, we have to extend." No, I think that's that's probably right, and it must it must be the kind of thing that's a, a tremendous gamble if you're trying to trying to retain the votes of people who could be most impacted by it. Yes, I mean, I think it would be a gift to Keir Starmer, frankly, if they were to. Uh, uh, fail to extend. David, thanks for joining us, and I look forward to sharing a drink with you when all this is over. Very much look forward to that, James. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this first Political Capital podcast. If you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, please do go to lansons.com forward slash public affairs to do so. And if you have feedback or comments, I'd love to hear from you. Please do email me on jamesd at lansons.com. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.